Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Um, today we're going to cover our last, again, our last week here in this module of Christ and Mankind. Okay, so last week we looked at the person of Christ. We started in being made in the image of God, how God made us. We looked at Genesis, how man and woman were made uh, in God's image. We looked at our responsibility that God has given us in different ways, uh, as well as freedom. Uh, Then we looked at sin and how sin has distorted all relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with one another. Uh, And last week we looked at the person of Christ. So this week we turn to the work of Christ. So last week we saw that the Son of God became incarnate. He came to earth for a distinct purpose, to save his people from their sins, right? Sin had tainted everything. Um, my, my daughters are getting into making homemade bread, and uh, they, make a, they use a little bit of leaven, and that taints, that, put, that, that, that affects the whole loaf. Right? And so sin is the same way, a little bit of sin, which we've inherited from Adam, our first, the, the first man, uh, taints everything, taints our whole being. Right? And so because of that, we see God's love for us in sending his son uh, to pay the penalty of sin that we owe. And so we see that, that, he's, uh, <clears throat> that the Son of God became incarnate for that purpose, to save his people from their sins, everything in Scripture is about the person of Christ, but also his work in view, okay? So Jesus did not become incarnate just for incarnate's sake, just to become a man, as if the incarnation were itself sufficient to save his people. It's that we are finite, and our remedy for our sin is the sacrifice that's needed through Jesus Christ. And we'll look at that at his work uh, on the cross today. So... uh, so we'll get started. This is what we're going to look at, the person of Christ, uh, the, the offices of Christ. We looked at, touched that a little bit last week. We're going to look at that a little more in depth this morning. Uh, the states of Christ and our union with Christ. All right. So if you remember in the beginning, in the beginning of our class, we looked at these uh, different offices and, and attributes, authority, control, and presence that when we are made in the image of God, God, uh, the, uh, man was given these positions. But sin again tainted those and has made those, uh, uh, has distorted all that. Okay? So scripture's description of Jesus' nature fits perfectly with this description of his work. So since Jesus is perfect, perfectly God, our redemption through his work is certain and permanent. Since he's perfect man, he's able to perform the works as God's image, his father's perfect likeness as Lord of all. And he displays these lordship attributes that Adam bore in creation, control, authority, and presence perfectly. Okay? And so Jesus is able to apply these qualities to meet our need of redemption, uh, executing those offices of prophet, priest, and king, which we'll look at. Okay? So these offices, again, help us to understand Jesus' redemptive work as well as his person. So it's both his person and his work in these offices. So the first one we looked at last week was his prophetic office. He is the eternal word of God. He's the greatest of all the prophets, indeed more than just a prophet. A prophet was one who had the very word of God on his lips that was given to give to the people. 
Uh, so Deuteronomy and Jeremiah, as well as other passages, show that the prophet's words are God's words. And so they're just as authoritative as the divine voice uttered from heaven. But Jesus is more than just a prophet. He is the very word of God himself. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And we see that later on in verse 14 that the word was Jesus. So when Jesus begins his teaching ministry, people are amazed at the authority with which he speaks. Not at all like the scribes and the Pharisees. He declares God's word truly, cutting through all the distortions and compromises of the Jewish traditions. Okay. He also teaches that his word is to be the only foundation of all of life. Jesus did not only speak his word only during his earthly ministry, the whole Old Testament is his word as well. Uh, Revelation 19.10 says, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So he's taught his disciples everything in the law, the prophets, and the writings of the Old Testament, and he taught them that they were all about him, that he fulfilled those things. Okay? So the whole Bible is not only the word of God, but the word of Jesus as well. Now, he's both the author and the chief theme of all scripture. And it's his gospel, his promise, and by that word, we're saved. Will you, Tom, will you start, will you read that first passage for us, please? <clears throat> and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow apart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, in, to them Thank you. So this passage is after Jesus' resurrection on the road to Emmaus. And two of his disciples are talking about what has just happened. All right, and we're confused about the meaning of Jesus' death. And he went on to describe what was going on. So when we see a past scripture as a testimony of Christ, every part of it takes on new, signific new significance. It's his book. So he is, in a sense, the only prophet, the best prophet. He determines the meaning of every prophecy, fulfills those. All right, so we also looked at his priestly office, all right? He's the perfect sacrifice for all. We're, we're looking at that uh, in our small group studies of Hebrews this week, uh, that he is the perfect sacrifice, that his, through his body, his blood, the veil was torn, right? Just as his body was torn. We look at that. <clears throat> Uh, Katie, can you read the next passage for us, please, there? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since we look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Thank you. So Jesus' sacrifice is what we normally think of first when we think of the work of Christ, right? The theological name for that sacrifice is the atonement. The word comes from an old English expression referring to reconciliation, bringing people to oneness. Literally, if you look at the word at one meant, right? So certain rec certainly reconciliation is part of the meaning of atonement. And we're reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ. But there's much more to his work than just that. <clears throat> Jesus' uh, atoning sacrifice fulfills the Old Testament sacrifices uh, that, were, that were given. In the Old Testament, God used those sacrifices to teach the people what Jesus was going to do later on, to point to him. It was a foreshadow of what Jesus was going to completely fulfill. Okay? So first, a sacrificial animal had to be perfect, spotless, without blemish. The Israelite wasn't to bring an offering to God that was cheap or worthless. He had to bring something really valuable, something 
perfect, something that he would otherwise treasure normally for himself. Jesus offered himself as the sinless lamb of God. He committed no sin. Neither his friends nor his enemies were able to find any fault in him. He also loved as no one, other, no one else has ever loved. And even the demons recognized him as the Holy One of God. So the Old Testament language of spotless sacrifice and sacrifice without blemish is applied to Jesus in Hebrews. We've looked at that in our small groups and in 1 Peter in the New Testament. So the same language is used of those who receive the atonement of Jesus' sacrifice, that we are, and we'll look at that, that we are found through his sacrifice to be spotless and blameless as well. So theologians usually break up uh, Christ's obedience into two different sections, his active and his passive obedience. Uh, so we'll first look at his active obedience. All right. <clears throat> so they, uh, theologians usually call Jesus' perfect life as his active obedience. When we believe in Christ, God counts us as righteous as he is. That is to say that God imputes, he puts on to us, the active obedience of Christ, his, his righteousness, so that he sees us, regards us, and declares us as righteous and holy, just as Jesus is. All right? And so when we talk about uh, impute, we mean to put on. So Jesus imputes his righteousness to us. Uh, where are we at? Sir, can, can you read that passage for us, please? Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> so God imputes, he puts on our sin onto Christ, and he puts our righteous, his righteousness onto us. God judges our sin, <clears throat> and he regards us as righteous because of Christ's work for us. All right? And we sometimes call this double imputation, right? So one, in, one on uh, his, Christ's righteousness on us, our sin on him, all right? And that's because of our original sin that we uh, were, are born in. And that's why we need the work of Christ. All right? So God not only forgives us our sins, he gives us the very righteousness of Christ. So we're not only acquitted, we're actually declared right and good. Okay? <clears throat> All right. Now we look at his passive obedience. So his, his active obedience was his perfect life okay? and his righteousness given to us. His passive obedience... All right, is his death on the cross, right? It's where we get the, the word, pass, the passion of Christ, right? You've heard that term before, <clears throat> okay? That Jesus voluntarily lays down his life for us, okay? Uh, so there's nothing, clearly nothing passive. It's very active in terms of, of needing to be done, something that needs to be done, but this is what is, they refer to it because of the uh, Latin word referring to suffering, Okay, so passive being related to suffering. <clears throat> so John 10, 18 says, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So Jesus is, again, referring to this himself. Okay? So again, it's not that there wasn't anything that he did. He did do a lot in his passive uh, uh, obedience, but it was because it was referring to his suffering. Okay? So we can accept the term passive obedience simply as referring to that, his suffering and his death. All right, <clears throat> All right so 
through his passive obedience, his death on the cross, all right, it is an atoning sacrifice. It reconciles us to God. And this is four ways that it does this, all right? Sacrifice uh, accomplishes several things. First, expiation means that Jesus bore our sins. He took them on himself and therefore did away with them, all right? He became our substitute. And as such, he took the full penalty that we owe to God, the penalty of death, okay? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So by expiation, Jesus wipes our slate clean. We have nothing to fear from God. God forgives our sins fully and completely, taking them as far from us as the east is from the west, the psalmist says. Okay? So expiation. All right. Second, propitiation means that he bore the wrath and anger of God that was due to sin. In some mysterious way, he was even estranged from his father on the cross, okay? As a father regarded him bearing our sins. <clears throat> on the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, some scholars and pastors have tried to eliminate the theme of this propitiation from the Bible, trying to make it a synonym of expiation. They don't like the idea of God being angry with people because of sin, okay? That's not biblical, okay? <clears throat> that attempt is wrong, okay? Our God cares about right and wrong, okay? And he's, he loves us so much that he sent Christ to do that work for us. And Psalm 711 tells us God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. So he is angry with the, with the wicked. And Jesus on the cross turned God's anger away from his people, and he bore that anger himself. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we shouldn't forget that God's anger against the wicked coexists with his love for his elect, for his people, okay? Indeed, even for those that, are, that, that do a wicked acts and that are his people, okay? God sent his son because he loved the sinful world. All of us were dead in our trespasses and sins, but before we had committed any sin, God loved us before the foundations of the world. We see that, okay? All right, so third, the atonement is reconciliation, as the English word implies, since we're righteous in God's sight through the work of Christ, he's no longer angry with us, and we are reconciled. We're no longer enemies with God. Now, again, some scholars and pastors tried to soften this idea by saying the atonement purges our enmity with God, uh, not God's uh, anger with us. But again, they think that God has no enmity, has no anger against sinners. Again, this is not biblically correct. All right? Numerous places talk about uh, in Scripture, talk about his anger, God's anger with sin. Okay? <clears throat> but Christ reconciles us to God. Okay? So believers live together with God in fellowship, in blessed fellowship with God through the work of Christ, and only that work. Okay? Uh, lastly, we look at the atonement as redemption. Okay? Redemption means literally buying something back. Okay? So in the Old Testament, when someone sold his property, or even got so far into debt that he sold himself into slavery, that was possible. You got so far into debt that you could sell yourself or your family into slavery. A relative could buy that property, that person, back, okay, and buy that person's freedom, all right? So this relative is called the kinsman redeemer, okay, and Leviticus 25 mentions that. The book of, in the book of Ruth, Boaz is an example of the kinsman redeemer. He redeems Ruth and her mother, uh, by marrying her and marrying and uh, taking on uh, her, her debt uh, and buying back uh, her property, okay? 
And so in Mark 10, uh, 45, Jesus says he has come to give his life as a ransom for many, buying us back as God's lost property. Okay? Not lost because God lost us, but because of our sin. All right? So his sacrifice on the cross was an act of great value. It purchased for him a people for his own possession. So we belong to God both in, by creation and by redemption, by Jesus' work for us. So these four terms help to summarize what uh, the atonement is and what it has done for us. All right. So we'll take a quick look at some wrong thoughts about the atonement. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. So some wrong thinkings are first that Jesus paid a ransom to Satan instead of to God. All right. This view sees the atonement of Christ. Um, as a, as a ransom paid to Satan to purchase man's freedom and released him from being enslaved to Satan. All right? It's based on a belief that man's spiritual condition is bondage to Satan and that the meaning of Christ's death was to secure God's victory over Satan. Unfortunately, this theory doesn't have much scriptural support and uh, doesn't have a whole lot of, of standing. Okay? It's unbiblical in that it sees Satan rather than God as the one who requires a payment to be made for sin. All right. Thus, it completely ignores the demands of God's justice as seen through Scripture. It also has a higher view of Satan than it should, views him as having more power than he, than he does. And again, there's not much scriptural support at all for this. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the other view, next view, oh, that, that Jesus, uh, his, his obedience was only a, more, a moral example. It was a moral example for us, but it, it was not just that. It was so much more than that. All right. <clears throat> so the atonement is an example for us, but it's not only an example. All right. If it was only an example, then Jesus is encouraging suicide that Scripture never honors or condones. Okay. But if Jesus laid, his down, laid down his life to bring life to others, then there is something here that we can be an example of. Okay. In one sense, we can never do what Jesus did. We can't take away the sins of others. All right. He took away the punishment of our sins. None of us can do that for ourselves or for one another. But a self-sacrifice is a great example to us in that it tells us to give ourselves in love for the benefit of others, for one another. Right? One of the benefits of being in a church is being able to do that for one another, to care and serve for each other. Okay? So 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So it is an example uh, in how we can love one another also. Okay? Uh, lastly, the governmental view teaches that God forgave our sins without any need of a sacrifice, but to impress us uh, upon us the seriousness of God's law. Okay? God put his son to death. This view, again, is unbiblical in many ways. First scripture teaches that blood sacrifice is required to receive God's forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Uh, again, remember uh, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. All right, second, this view, God demonstrates the severity of his law by putting to death an innocent man. Unless Jesus is a substitute for us, his death is a demonstration in this view of injustice, not justice. Okay, so again, I'm going over these fairly quickly. All of these things, books have been written about. If you have questions, please, about these, come see me after class. All right, but there, there's much more detail than what I'm going into that I can in a 45-minute class. So, all right, so who did Christ die for? All right, Christ died for? His elect, those chosen by God. 
all right? It's limited in its extent, okay? As, as we look at the five points of Calvinism, one of them is limited atonement, all right? It's limited in, in, his, in the extent to who that is. God chooses some, all right? And Christ died for those. We don't know who those are, okay? Only God knows his elect, all right? It's unlimited in its efficacy, in what it does, all right? So it, it takes away our sin completely. So that means and when it's unlimited, it means it has done the work that is necessary completely, all right? <clears throat> so it's limited in its extent to those that God has chosen, his chosen people. It's unlimited in its efficacy and its work and its effect of, of what it does, all right? <clears throat> all right? So we look at... Christ's priestly office as well, okay? We, we talked about a few other, the, his, uh, his prophetic office, now his priestly office. Christ intercedes for us, all right? We looked at that, excuse me. Now we looked at his kingly office, all right? So he was historically from the kingly line of David, all right? He was ruler of all things as he accomplishes his redemptive work, all right? So in connection with, Christ, with uh, Jesus' priestly priesthood, we focus more on his atoning death as a sacrifice, all right? In connection with his kingship, we focus on his resurrection. The resurrection, like the atonement, is part of our salvation from sin. It's Jesus' great triumph over death and sin. Death could not hold him, all right? It's also the Father's witness that Jesus' claims are true and that his atonement accomplished its purposes, so in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul tells us that the resurrection of Christ is the very basis of our faith. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, we are still dead in our sins. We, we of all people are most miserable. So the risen Christ has all authority and power through the created universe. Scripture tells us when he returns, every eye will see him, every knee will bow before him as the rightful king over all the earth. And on that day, his royal word will judge all the living and the dead. So he's the object of our, all of our worship and praise. All right. <clears throat> all right. We shouldn't forget that the gospel is good news about the coming of the king. All right. Will you read the pas Isaiah's passage for us, please? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Thank you. So again, this is from Isaiah. Jesus quotes this passage in Luke 4 when he goes in the synagogue. Okay? The prophet Isaiah goes on to mention other things, but here is the gospel about the coming of the anointed one, the Messiah, the king, and all the things the king will do. He will bind up the brokenhearted. He will set the captives free. Who can do that but a king? He proclaims both God's favor and his vengeance. So our service to this great king is wonderful freedom that we're given. To trust this king is also to trust a priest who vives for our forgiveness, who prays for us, who's in constant intercession with God. He lives on the right hand of God and prays for us. And to trust this king is to trust a prophet whose word is completely true and trustworthy. So we see the, the offices, prophet, priest, and king, all right? and his active and passive obedience in those. Now we'll look at the states of Christ. All right? We'll focus on two things, his humiliation and his exaltation. So what things are involved when you hear of Christ's humiliation? What comes to mind? He's leaving heaven and 
Mm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a, that's a major part of it, definitely. What else? Okay. Well, he yeah, he comes down as a man. Yep, yep, absolutely. Okay. What else? All right. He was mocked. Absolutely. Okay. Part of his humiliation. What else? He was yes. Okay. Obedient to the point of death. Definitely. Okay. Ah, humble circumstances, right? It was uh, in a uh, in a cattle stall, right? Absolutely, yep, definitely. Okay, all right. Other thoughts? Okay. Absolutely. It was they, there was a reason that the Romans chose that for the most heinous crimes because it was the most painful and the most humiliating type of death. Absolutely. Yeah, you guys got, got a lot of them. <clears throat> um, where are we at? Dominic, can you read that for us? Yeah. Okay, thank Have you. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient on the cross. Thank you. So this is what the Westminster Confession says about his humiliation. So the English is a little, little uh, clunky because it's a little old, but I'll read it. Uh, it's from the Shorter Catechism. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Okay? So we see all that cross that, that excuse me that Christ did for us by coming to earth because he loved us. He was humbled, humiliated in all these ways for us. Okay? So in scripture God is both personal as well as absolute and this is a, a, a clear example of how Christ does that for us. All right? <clears throat> so we see his humiliation, all right? Now his exaltation. How do we see his Christ being exalted? <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> all right, his ascension, definitely. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, yep, good, good. He will come back, and yeah, all things have been placed, and, and, and again will be placed under his authority, ultimately. Yep. What happened before his ascension? His resurrection, right? Right? That's part of his, part of his, uh, his ascension. So, uh, where are we at? Bronwyn, can you read that for us, please? Thank you. So this is what the Westminster again says about his exaltation. Wherein consists is Christ's exaltation. All right. It exists in his rising again from the dead on the third day 
in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. All right. So we see his, his exaltation, okay, but also before that was his humiliation. Okay. All right. So these things lead to our union with Christ going forward. All right. First one is our election. God, we've been chosen. Those who are in Christ have been chosen before the foundation of the world and are chosen to be with Christ and in Christ. So we'll look at uh, uh, the first chapter of Ephesians real quick to finish up our, our class, and it will talk about some of these things. All right, so can you read the next passage for us? Ephesians 1, 3 4. Thank you. So this passage begins with the Father's intention to bless us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the Father's first step towards bestowing these blessings is to choose us in Him. Okay? So the goal of this union is that we should be holy and blameless before Him, as it tells us. So those whom God has chosen, they're predestined to be holy and blameless because they are in Christ. So God will certainly love them forever because of Christ's work for us. So why are we chosen in Christ instead of just chosen? Our passage here tells us that Christ is the one who secures our holiness and blamelessness. He guarantees that far in advance of our historical existence. So even in the ideal existence of God's eternity, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So we're elected before, before time and, and chosen in Christ. All right. All right. Also, in Christ, we're given adoption. Okay? We're adopted as sons. We're given a position of privilege and an inheritance of eternal life. So election in Christ leads not only to our holiness and blamelessness, but even to our adoption as sons. Okay? And to be a son is to not only be like him, to image God, but also to have a position of privilege. It entitles us to a great inheritance, the greatest inheritance ever given, that of eternal life. Uh, you read the next passage for us, please. In him also we have, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we, who were, who were the first hope in Christ, should be to the praise of his glory. Thank you. All right. So we see we're, we're, we're adopted as sons and given this inheritance of eternal life. Okay. All right. Lastly, we're redeemed. Okay. God's forgiven us. Forgiveness of our sins is only because of our union with Christ. There's nothing we can do. Okay. Uh, there's nothing that we can grow inside us. There's nothing good inside us that will do this for us. Only the work of Christ does this for us, forgives us, pays a penalty for our sins, all right? And our regeneration, coming to a new life, comes from Jesus' resurrection, his work on the cross, 
as well. Can you read that last passage for us? Thank you. So God's eternal plan to unite all things in Christ is revealed to us in history. God forgave us our sins on the basis of Jesus' shed blood. So God's eternal intention for us comes through historical events, through the crucifixion of Christ. On the basis of that blood atonement, we receive forgiveness of sins. Not only is redemption on the basis of his work, but it is in him meaning God's forgiveness of our sins out of that relationship that began in eternity past continues into eternity now and future as well. Uh, As you move on uh, to your next module, you'll look at justification and sanctification. Okay, so justification, God's verdict, God declaring us righteous, all right, that our sins will not be counted on uh, is, again, only because of Christ's work, all right, it's through his death and resurrection that we're able to be called and declared righteous. All right? And you'll look at that more de- uh, in more in depth in the next module. All right? Also, our sanctification, the work by which God makes us holy, is in Christ. So to be godly is to walk in Christ, rooted and builded up in him and created in Christ Jesus for good works. So the Christian life is a life of Christ, he in us and we in him. As Jesus looked toward the cross with his disciples in the, in the Gospel of John, he promises that after he was raised, he will come to them and impart to them the rich fellowship with him, similar to the relationship that he enjoys with the Father. So in John 14, 20, it says, In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. But Christ's work is the only thing that makes it possible for us to be reconciled to God. And also, our regeneration into a new life comes through that resurrection. Okay? <clears throat> so we'll look at you. You'll see those other things. You'll talk about your justification and your sanctification later on in another class. But to be godly is to walk in Christ, rooted and building in Him, created in Christ for, uh, for good works. All right? Love you guys. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoyed this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is truth to live by.